Romans, you can start turning there in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We have a very short text today, three verses, verses 8 through 10. While you're finding that in your Bibles, uh, just a, a, a brief uh, word of, um, by way of introduction. So I'm going to tell some stories here uh, to try to connect us to to life. Uh, if any of those stir stories uh, you find to be emotionally troubling, I just want to encourage you, if you need to take a moment to step out of the room, please feel free to do that. Uh, I understand that sometimes some of the stories that we tell uh, could be uh, troubling in light of uh, your own experiences in life. So uh, we don't intend to do that. So if you need to step out, please feel free uh, to do that. Uh, all right. If you might, wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word, that would be great. And then we're going to pray. So just three verses today. I'm going to be reading aloud. I ask you to follow along silently in uh, your English translation or whichever language you prefer to read in. It would be great. So picking up at verse 8, uh, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment um, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Why don't we pray uh, as we get ready to think about God's word. Heavenly Father, I first of all want to pray for Pastor Mike as he is away today preaching at a church plant. I want to pray that you would uh, use him right now as he's probably getting up to preach at this very moment. That you would strengthen him and let his words be your words. Speak to the hearts and minds of that congregation through him as he shares the message that he has prepared to preach there. And I want to thank you for strengthening him this week, Lord, as he uh, had to conduct three funerals and preach this weekend. And so I just pray that you would strengthen him, Lord, um, as uh, he uh, seeks to expound your word to a, a, a congregation that he doesn't have a chance to see every week. So bless him. And be with us today, Lord. Uh, we realize that apart from your spirit, uh, that our efforts will be fruitless. Uh, we want to be changed. We want to live differently. We want to live our lives in a way that Christ lived his life. And we need your help, as Lisa just prayed, to do that. So would you speak to our hearts? Would you receive the glory and the honor for what is said? Would you be magnified and lifted up today? Um, Lord, I pray that Jesus' name is exalted. Uh, the Spirit, you, our Father, are lifted up and honored in everything that is done. And Father, if I have done anything that has displeased you, would you partner for Jesus' sake so that I might be a vessel by which your Spirit might use to say what you once said? And then would you work in our hearts and minds as we hear these things expounded from your word uh, to let us know what path our individual life needs to take in light of where you're directing us as you shape us into the image of Christ. We pray these things for the good of your people and for the glory of the name of your great name and through your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So if you've ever been to church or attended a worship service, interesting things can sometimes happen in worship services. And such was the case last week at the 11 a.m. service in a church in my hometown of Houston, Lakewood Church. Uh, for many, now, for some of you, you may not be familiar with who Lakewood is. Lakewood is one of the largest churches in Houston and probably one of the largest churches in the country. Uh, on a normal weekend between their services, they see around 50,000 people or more uh, on a weekend regularly. 
Uh, I'm guessing that's about, since I think they only do two services on a Sunday, they, I think they see about 25 to 30,000 people per service. Uh, and part of the way that they conduct their services came out of how John Osteen, Joel, Joel's father, conducted the service uh, there. And right before the sermon, what they normally do is they stand up, the entire congregation holds up their Bible, and they do a confession. This is my Bible. I believe what it says. And they, and they go on, and the confession goes like that. He leads it, the pastor does, and the congregation follows by repeating that saying. Uh, then they, they then sit down, and following that, he prays, and then he shares whatever message he has prepared for whatever sermon series that he's in for that week. Well, last week at the 11 a.m. service, they do what they do every week. And as they were finishing the confessional and the audience began to sit down, three young ladies in the center of the room down at the bottom um, did not sit down. Instead, they started to do what you normally see uh, at a beach. And they started to remove their clothes during the service and strip down to their underclothing. Then they began to yell out, my body, my choice, uh, with some colorful language added in to emphasize the point. The greeters or ushers or security team uh, made their way over to the section where the ladies were standing and shouting uh, in the church service. Uh, however, the ladies had strategically positioned themselves to make it hard to get to them because there was people everywhere around them. So it took a moment to, excuse me, I need to get by you, excuse me, let me just get around you, you know, and make their way down the aisle to say, hey, I, we need to kind of get you to make your way out of the congregation since that's what you're going to continue to do to disrupt the service. So they finally, uh, after some moments, helped them to navigate their way out of the service kindly, uh, make their way out to the parking lot where they joined uh, others who were on the same team who were protesting out in the parking lot and dressed similarly to emphasize their point of what they were trying to get across, which they saw um, as the church holding an anti-abortion view um, that had been leaked in U.S. Supreme Court documents or opinion that had been released, and they wanted to, to do that. So they, they thought, hey, this is a good way to come into a peaceful protest uh, into the Christian safe space to let them know their spaces are not safe, uh, and we're going to be able to come in and voice uh, our views. What was of interest to me was the pastor's response, uh, Pastor Joel Osteen. Uh, one of the articles recorded what he said, which I thought was interesting in how he decided to handle the situation. So while these events were transpiring and the ladies were yelling out in the quietness uh, as people were getting ready to pray and making their point, he said this uh, when things started to happen. He said, well, so we'll just take a moment here and we'll get started. But I know this. I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord with the people of faith. So thank you, Lord, for a good service. And as they continued to shout him, he went on to say, all, in Texas fashion, all right, y'all, we love everybody. And we just want to thank the Lord that he's in control and he has all things in his hand. And I think as long as I keep talking, you can't hear what everybody else is saying. Now, if you've lived more than a few days on planet Earth, you've probably come to the conclusion, like me, that we're going to have to decide how we're going to interact in relationships with other human beings. And the Lakewood incident, of course, reminds us that interacting with other human beings is not always an easy decision to make. And what is the right thing to do is not always clear. And sometimes what that causes us to do is we decide to withdraw or choose not to interact uh, because we feel like, hey, this is the best course of action. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, God doesn't leave us that option on the table because God has spoken. And we might say each time we read God's word, God is speaking to us 
through, uh, through his word. And I would say like Pastor Osteen here, but with the focus on God, if we focus our attention on God, then we will not be distracted by what others are saying in our society because we'll be listening to God. And why is focusing on God important? Well, because sometimes even other believers might say things unintentionally that are in contradiction to what God has said. Let me give you an example. So this week in the office, two of our brothers who were, uh, as they were finishing up their work stuff, they mentioned Survivor. Uh, It's a TV show about surviving. It's a game. Uh, And they were talking about, I guess, one of the more recent seasons, season 41. And on this season, there was a pastor who decided to be one of the contestants. Uh, She's a pastor, I think, in the D.C. area. And so she was playing the game. I I found interesting, though, what she said in her promotional video in light of her beliefs and pastoring and shepherding others uh, and in light of what we're talking about. And this is what she said. I think the best players are who they are in the game, who they are in real life. And so I think what I'm going to bring to the game is just like the offer of authentic relationship, which is a big value when you're playing survivor and you can't trust anybody. But also, I'm pretty sneaky. Like, I'm pretty smart, and I'm pretty quick on my feet. So while I want to gain the trust of my tribe mates, I am also not concerned about, like, slitting their throats in the end. Now, I take it she was speaking metaphorically there, or we might have to arrest her after the game. But then she went on to talk about valuing forgiveness. But it was hard for me to think that she meant that in light of the comment that she had just made. I'm not concerned. And that's, those are the words that reverberated in my mind. And if it's true that what she valued is the way you play the game reflects who you really are in the real world, then I might have some concerns about her character. But thankfully, God has spoken to us by his spirit through his apostles to guide us in the right direction. And not necessarily every believer gives us the right direction, but his apostles do. And what God calls us to is to be concerned about the welfare of other people. And so today in our short little message that I have, I'm going to raise two thoughts from the text. Two thoughts. So let's return to the text. Let's read again verse 8. We'll pick our first thought up here. So owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Here's my first thought. Very simple, very, very straightforward. Love other people. Love other people. Now, Paul is returning to a concept that he's already raised in chapter 12, love. And he's going to bridge to this idea or concept, as Pastor Mike had let us know last week, uh, he, he's been talking about this idea of Christians and their, their view and how they ought to interact with governmental authorities. But he bridges back to this concept of love by overlapping two ideas, uh, by changing the meaning of them, uh, which is this concept of debt. He switches from a financial category uh, to a relational category. He, he speaks literally, then he kind of switches over to a metaphorical usage of the idea. But to do that, He transitions by using this idea of debt. And he draws upon this idea because, so in light of what the scriptures say, remember he only has the Hebrew Bible as his text. The New Testament is being written at the time. Uh, He looks at the teachings of what was given to, to the nation of Israel, the people of God, about how believers are to interact with debt. And that is that if you borrow from somebody else, or if you owe, in this case he used taxes, or if you got a loan, the only right thing for a believer to do is to repay 
the debt that they owe. But Paul says instead here in the text, there is a debt, relationally speaking, if we could use that concept, that is owed between us and other human beings. And this debt is a debt that cannot be repaid. It is a debt that remains outstanding in relationships, and that is we are always to have the debt on the books, if, relationally speaking, to love other people. Now, commentators have debated whether or not this other people only focuses on believers or the broader scope, just humanity in general. While Paul's focus might be believers, he does seem to have in mind also others who are not necessarily in the household of faith. Uh, Jesus himself had taken the definition of neighbor and he pushed out the walls on that to include those which might otherwise we have excluded to include others. And so that's kind of the idea. So Paul tells us at the beginning of verse eight to love one another. And then in the second part of verse eight, he says, love the one who is different from you. Here, Paul most likely, I believe, has in mind that Jew Gentile distinction. Why would I say that is because this has been the prominent theme in Romans this Jew-Gentile distinction. And then what he's going to say in Romans 14 and following, he's going to deal with some of these cultural and ethnic divisions and diversity and talk about how love plays into that and how we're to relate to one another in light of that. And I think that's what he has in mind. Now, why does Paul put such emphasis on love? I think one writer captures the sentiment well. For Paul, loving others is the single most important characteristic of the Christian life and the heart of Christian living. Think about what his words were at the closing of the letter of Corinthians. Paul said this, let all that, that you do be done in love. Here, Paul echoes the teaching of Jesus himself. You remember what the Lord said to the disciples? Hey, listen, love will be the defining characteristic of those who call themselves the disciples of Jesus Christ. And Paul understands this in light of the age to come reality that has dawned in our current age by the gifting of God, of God's spirit to Believers, As he wrote in Romans chapter 5, that in God giving his spirit to us, God has poured out in the heart of believers his love. And the spirit begins to work in the lives of believers to transform the way we think about others in light of the action of God so that we love them. And one of the things that happens that motivates us to this is that we have received God's love through Jesus and that motivates us when we think about how God has loved us through Jesus. Jesus loved us when he sacrificed his life for our sins, when he was raised for our justification, and as Paul is going to go to next week, and we'll get to that here shortly uh, in the weeks to come, his glorious return for our salvation. And Paul goes on to say also we have re received these wonderful gifts one, the undeserved gift of forgiveness of our sins and the unspeakable gift, which has begun now, but will evidence itself in the days to come and in the, in the, in the life to come, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And this historical event that has happened in the world through Jesus giving itself for sinners reshapes the apostles' understanding or shapes it uh, in light of the Messiah of what love is and how he defines it. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, who shapes the definition of love around this church's specific needs, gives us a window into how he understands what love is. I like the way one writer gives us a window to describing how Paul understands love when he writes these words. Real love is not self-centered, but is willing to sacrifice its own desires for the good of others. It is in this sense of self-sacrifice for others, modeled by Christ's sacrifice for us, 
that lies at the heart of Paul's understanding of what real love is. Loving others is not simply a matter of doing good or showing mercy, but it's to spring from a sense of genuine care and compassion. It is to be real and heartfelt. Going through the motions will not suffice. So what he gets at here is, look, love is not simply random acts of kindness. What love is, it is, is the human will moved to action out of genuine concern for the welfare and well-being of another person. And love, that then means that in light of that, it may require different things of us or different levels of involvement in different situations. Let me give you a few illustrations of how love might play out in various ways. Sometimes it requires very little effort from us or involvement, just out of concern for others. So this past Thursday, I received an email from Pat, who is our church administrator. Uh, and he says, sends the staff an email, and he says to us, hey, listen, staff, if you're working on Monday, tomorrow, uh, you won't be able to park on the church's parking lot because the driveway will be closed off. Uh, they're going to be resealing the entire street, the church's private street, and the parking lots and the driveways. And so you're going to have to park on, we've got requested permission from the Catholic, lot, Catholic church to park in one of their lots, and then be able to walk up on the side and make your way up to the building to be able to work. Now, if you're familiar with our property, there is another agency, a social agency seeking to help people that's at the end of our road. And the only access that clients have to reach that agency is our church road. And that's going to be closed on Monday. So one of the natural questions I had, I wrote Pat back and I said, hey, Pat, do we need to let the agency know? And in wonderful Pat fashion, he replied back, no, we don't need to let them know, but I did. Why? Because he was concerned about this other agency and their clients receiving the aid that they're providing. He loved them in that way. Sometimes it requires little. Sometimes loving other people requires more effort. So two weeks ago, my family and I were on our way to the Saturday night service because that's the service we generally like to attend with our kids because they're awake at that point. We don't have to struggle with getting them dressed and those kinds of things because by 6 p.m. in the evening, they're generally dressed on most days. <laughs> most days. We homeschool. Sometimes they don't change clothes. Uh, and so we were on our way to church. We got off 83 and right there at the corner of the Catholic Church as we were turning to head down Derry Street towards Oakley Avenue, we noticed that there was a gray Jeep Cherokee that had had a new relationship with the traffic pole and had been reshaped by this relationship. <laughs> Inside the car sat a gentleman who looked dazed. So we pulled around to the church uh, Catholic parking lot to see how we could help. It so, it so worked out that we happened to be one of the later people arriving. Numerous other people had already arrived, and they had gotten out of their cars. There were numerous of guys surrounding the car, talking to the driver. Two ladies were on their phones already making phone calls to emergency services. So my family and I decided to come to the church and see if we could find anybody who was medical personnel that maybe we can get over to help until the ambulance arrived. When we were by at church afterwards, everything was cleaned up as if nothing had ever happened. It had, it had been resolved. But those people had taken time. I'm not sure that they, they were planning on stopping there at the Catholic church on Saturday evening, but they stopped. It, it, it disrupted their day, and they made time to care for someone who was in need. Sometimes love takes a little more. Sometimes love requires quite a bit from us to love other people. I'm going to share a story with you that Pastor Mike has shared in the past. I've shared it in the past, but I'm just going to remind you of it because I think it illustrates the point well. So a number of years ago, there was a brother in our church family. His health was deteriorating. He needed a kidney transplant in order to keep living. 
So a number of brothers in our church family went to get tested to see if they were a match. One of those brothers found out that he was a match. What he did was he then donated his kidney. He went through the surgery and the recovery to give up one of his kidneys so that another brother can live. What was fascinating to me is it gets exactly at what Paul says in this, this text because they were two brothers who out externally speaking, they were different. But yet he loved the brother who was different than him and saved his life. Sometimes love requires all that we have. Jesus put it this way. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Paul doesn't stop there, but he has more to say about love. And this brings us to our second point in the text. Our second point in the text. Let's go back and we'll pick back up and we'll read the verse again because it's really a part B and then verses 9 and 10 that explain the second thing that Paul raises from the text. So owe no one anything except to love each other, for the, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Second idea. So the first idea was love other people. The second idea is loving other people. When you love or when we love other people, we obey God. So when we love other people, we obey God. So Paul is now going to bring into proximity these two concepts that he's been talking about, the Mosaic law and love. And he's going to show how they relate to one another. Now, we know from the early chapters of Romans that we've spent time covering that obedience to the Mosaic law will not result in salvation on the final day. So when Jesus shows up to judge humanity, if you were seeking to obey the law in light of the fact of the turning of the ages with the arrival of Jesus, you will not find salvation on the last day. And Paul explains why that is. It's not a problem with the law. It's a problem with people. The problem is we continue to sin. And the grace that was under the old covenant has been removed because a new covenant has been established by God and that, no, that old covenant is no longer valid. And then we find in Romans chapter 7 that when a person places faith in Jesus Christ, they come into a new relationship with Christ, which gets rid of the relationship with the law. And in light of that, we're not under obligation to obey the demands of the law. As Paul said, we have been freed from the law through our relationship with Jesus Christ. But he says, and the apostles raises, there is a new law in Christ. It is Christ's law, which we find out is the law of love. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples before he departed? He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Yet Paul says here that love fulfills the law. How so? I like the way Dr. Schreiner explains this, and so I want to share what he said with you. He says this in his writings. All the commands of the law are simply expressions of love. Paul most likely believes that the moral norms of the Mosaic law are to be part of the law of Christ. The specific commands cited in the, in, uh, excuse me, the specific commands cited help Christians discern how love expresses itself in a specific situation. But other moral norms also help believers to define it. If love is cut free from any commands, it easily dissolves into sentimentality and virtually any course of action can be defended as loving. 
So the love that Paul has in mind in light of the reality of God and in light of the commandments given by God in light of how God has expressed his nature and his character to the people of Israel, his people, and in light of the Christ event, Paul says what this love is falls within the moral boundaries expressed by God in his word. And what love does is love accomplishes what the law sought to legislate in human relationships. And that was this, that the law's intention was to help people care about the welfare of others. See, if a person is truly concerned about the welfare of their neighbor or a fellow believer in light of the reality of God, he or she will not violate those relational boundaries that God has expressed in his word. For instance, if my neighbor loves me and is concerned about my welfare, my neighbor will not come into my house at 2 a.m. in the morning and murder me in my sleep. If my neighbor loves me and is concerned about me and concerned about the welfare of my relationship, my neighbor will not start or seek to start a relationship with my spouse or do, do things to my children in order to violate that relationship and cause my marriage to fail. If my neighbor is concerned about me, my neighbor will not take things that belong to me and claim it as their own. Paul goes on to deal with the internal and quoting from the Ten Commandments and says, if I love my neighbor or if I love my fellow believer, I won't even desire what belongs to them. See, love helps us to move in a direction, even when we don't have a law that moves in helping us th help humans thrive as God designed. Because there's not a law for every situation, but love helps me know what to do in light of the laws I have received and understanding of God's character and nature. In the ancient world, in the first centuries, as Christianity was rising and growing in influence in the Roman Empire, one of the socially accepted practices by society was when you had unwanted children was to expose them. At that time in society, human life was not valued, perhaps with the way that we value it today in the church. And so when a family had a newborn infant and they didn't want that infant, they simply, in the first week of life, left that infant outside and it was exposed. Some of the infants were picked up by other families and were adopted. Many were picked up so that they could become the fuel for the slave market. They could be raised to become slaves to fit various slave roles in society. Others died from various causes, and I will not speak about those because some of them are pretty graphic. Now, you might ask, why would a family opt for this? Well, there were a variety of reasons why families would do such a thing. One, it was to relieve economic pressure on the family. More mouths, more finances. You're stressed. Your finances are pressed beyond measure. You got an extra baby coming. You just give that baby up. Sometimes it was because you had already decided this is how many kids you wanted, and so you didn't want any more. Limit family size. Sometimes it was just because, listen, it was a girl. You already had one daughter. Boys were great to have. More of them was good. More daughters, not so good. So if you had more than one daughter, you would just leave her outside because one girl was enough. Or sometimes they did it because... Daddy wasn't sure that he really was daddy. 
and to avoid the shame, you would expose the child. Now, Christians had an interesting response to this. One, in the early writings of the Christians throughout, such as in the Didache, uh, the Christians condemned this practice in their writings, saying this societal practice does not honor what God has said about human life. But Christians just didn't talk a good game. Christians lived a good game. Early Christians took it upon themselves to care for these exposed infants. And often what they did was when they found them along the way, they picked those children up and brought them into their own homes and adopted them and raised those children. And then churches collectively took up offerings so that they could care for those who were poor and ill. And then as the years went on, churches began to develop what we now know as, in the early stages, what we came today as hospitals and had these sections in the hospitals to care for unwanted infants and also those who lost their parents to various reasons in society who became orphans. And the church's reputation for doing this became so well known in society that when someone wanted to abandon a child, they got to the point where they said, listen, the place to leave these unwanted children is at the door of the church. So because wherever believers in Jesus gather, I know that if I leave my child there because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they won't walk by, see a child in need and not act. Love will drive them to act for the benefit of another. As infants grew, as, as the Christianity's influence grew in society in the late 300s, the laws were changed because of Christianity's influence, and abandoning or intentionally killing a child became illegal. See, love moved the church, not only to denounce practices, but to act for the welfare of those who were their neighbors. And in doing so, they fulfilled the command that God had given and that Jesus had given, love your neighbor as yourself. And in a very literal way, love saved and changed lives. Now, we might say that, hey, this was true of the church a millennia ago. Maybe we might say it's not true of the church today, but that would be wrong. There are many illustrations where believers who have faith in Jesus Christ are doing the same thing today. Let me give you one of those examples. So there was a gentleman, there's a gentleman by the name of John Coyle, who in the late or early 70s, who played football for Alabama under Coach Bear Bryant. In 1973, they won a national championship uh, where Alabama won. And he, because he was on the team and getting ready to graduate soon, had a promising NFL career before him and could have headed off to the NFL. And he ended up talking to his coach, and the coach told him, listen, if you have something else that you're driven by, you need to do that instead of playing professional football, because if you're going to play professional football, you need to be married to it. That's the kind of commitment that you need to make. Well, God had other plans for John. So his life took a different turn because of his involvement in a summer camp and because of his faith in Jesus Christ. So he went to Mississippi, another state, to volunteer there at a summer camp as a counselor. And while he was there that summer, he met a young boy from the streets of New Orleans. And in the process of getting to know this young boy, he found out the life that he was living. This young boy uh, had come from a home in which his mother her job was a prostitute, and she had employed her young son to serve as her timekeeper and her banker. And so he began to share with him what it meant to be a Christian, shared the gospel with him about faith in Jesus Christ and how he could become a Christian. And so he did then help to care for that boy that summer. A year passed. He came back to the same camp the next year. 
And lo and behold, the same boy who he had met the summer before came back to the summer camp, and he found John. And when he found him, he shared about how in that year, since he had come to faith in Jesus Christ, his life had radically changed. In light of that, John then saw before him what God was calling him towards and what, would he, what he should do with his life, which was not going to the NFL, but to care for children who were hurting. And so in 1974, he started what is now known as Big Oak Boys Ranch out of a desire and out of his faith to give hurting children a chance. They start off with a single farmhouse, only having five boys. Today they have seven ministry teams dedicated to continually improving the life of these young children. In 1988, they were faced with another situation in which they had to bridge outside of just caring for boys. So there was a young girl that they became, that became known in the area who were brought to them who had been abused by her parents. So Big Oak went to court and they advocated to the judge, release this girl into our care. We will raise this girl and we will care for her so that she can be uh, raised and make it into adulthood. The judge said, listen, your ranch is only for boys. I'm not going to release her into your care. So they sent her back home and unfortunately, she later died. Big Old Ranch then said, in light of this situation, we are not, we are not going to do nothing and not do anything about reaching girls. And so they decided to start a camp. They gathered up the money and resources and said, we're not going to have this happen again. We're going to care for girls as well. So they started a, a camp for girls. And now, thankfully, after since 1974, they've been able to help raise 2,000 children. If you go out to their website, you'll find this statement. This is their mission statement. Big Oak, Oak Ranch exists to meet the needs of abused, neglected, and abandoned children by giving them a, a solid Christian home and a chance to realize and fulfill God's plan for their lives. Every child who walks through the door of Big Oak Ranch, excuse me, irregardless of their past, they make these four promises to each child. One, we will love you. Two, we'll never lie to you. Three, we will stick with you until you're grown. And four, don't violate the boundaries. In those four promises they make to each child, the child is able to find love and emotional support, truth and honesty, security and discipline. Now, John, because he realized that he might be tempted along the way to move away because there might be hard times along the journey, kept a statement in his pocket to give him perspective in light of eternity and his faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what the statement said. A hundred years from now, it will not matter what kind of house you lived in, the kind of car you drove or how much money you had in the bank, but the world may be different because you and I were important in the life of a child. He decided to love because Jesus has loved. That reminds me, and I close with the words of Jesus, and Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. What is Paul's message to us today? Love one another. Love other people, and in doing so, you will obey the will of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word as we are challenged. Might we, as opportunity presents itself, love others. We realize that sometimes loving others may not be very costly at all, and sometimes it may be extremely costly. We do ask, Father, that as we do that, that you would help us. 
by the power of your spirit to put the interests and the concerns and the welfare of others before our own. And Father, we thank you now for the ability to pool our resources through an offering, as the church has done for millennia, to care for those who are in need, to help, to reach out, to spread the good news about Jesus and to care for the needs that people have in this world that they might live. So we thank you for this opportunity and that you have provided for our livelihood and well-being so that we might give to others. And Lord Jesus, as you said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So we give you thanks that we're able to do that today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. <laughs>